verse number five today. Colossians chapter three, beginning verse five. It says these words, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these two you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all. And he is in all. And this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Last week I introduced the idea that as believers we are presented here in Colossians chapter 3 and then in chapter 4 with a new way to live our life. All right, that's what last week's message title was, a, a new way to live. And of course, I did this based on the way that the Apostle Paul writes his letters, in which they usually start out with very uh, strict doctrinal teaching. And then he transitions into application or what this means for life. So, for instance, if you go through the book of Romans, you understand that the Apostle Paul is laying out the whole idea and concept of salvation. The fact that everyone is guilty and condemned before God. And then we cannot do this on our own. We cannot do it through our works. We, we accept Christ by faith and then Christ comes into our life and changes us. And the salvation is not just for Jews, but also for Greeks, for Romans, for the whole entire world. He lays all of this out to the first 11 chapters. And then in chapter 12, he tells us that in view of what he has explained, this is how we are to live our lives. We are to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. The Apostle Paul has done the exact same thing here in the book of Colossians. He has laid out for us the reality, the truth that Christ is greater that Christ is superior, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. And this world runs because of Him. Christ upholds all things. He is greater than any other thing that is out there in this world. Therefore, you don't need to give in to any kind of false teaching that tells you there is something outside of Christ to adhere to. And so in verse 1 of chapter 3, we saw those words. Therefore, or if then, you have been raised with Christ, that this truth is applied to your lives. And now behooves us to live a new and different way. If we really believe that Christ is greater, 
What does this mean for our life? What does this mean for ourselves? What does this mean for how we interact with each other? This is what the Apostle Paul is explaining. (coughs) Excuse me. And he starts out by explaining, as we mentioned last week, that we are to take our minds, to take our lives and now set them on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. In reality of who we are in Christ, it behooves us to take our old mind, our old way of thinking, and to lay it down, and now to present ourselves and to focus our lives on things that are above. This is the command that God, or that the Apostle Paul, I should say, gave to us last week. But here we see another command in verse Number five, not only are we to set our mind on things that are above, seek the things that are above, but here in verse five, there's another command. What is that command? That command is this, put to death what is earthly in you. Take your things, the things that are in your life that are earthly, and put them to death. Okay, so in this chapter so far, we have seen two different commands, two different ways of living. First of all, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above from verses 1 and 3. And now in verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. So this morning, if I can get through it here, I've been battling a cold all week, so bear with me. But my objective this morning is to give to you First of all, the severity of this command, the reason for this command, and then the result, result of obeying this command. So look, first of all, at the severity of this command. And what do I mean by severity? Of course, I mean the the harshness, the absolute harshness of what the Apostle Paul is, is telling us to do. Notice what he says there in verse 5. Put to death. Put to death. Now, would it surprise you this morning, and this is what you get when you spend all your money and all your life in seminary and Bible college and whatever else, you get brilliant insight like this, uh, that the word, the phrase put to death means exactly that. Put to death. In fact, here are some summaries that, 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 that are compiled from different translations and different ways of understanding. It means to put to death, to kill, to render as dead, to consider as dead, to treat as dead, to mortify, to cease completely, to not be controlled by. In fact, this phrase is translated, do not do what is evil like a dead person does not do what is evil. And it is implied in this verb, it is implied in this phrase, that extreme measures are taken to guarantee and to understand that there will be a cessation of activity. 
Again, it's not a slap on the face. It's not a tap on the shoulder. It's not a, uh, you know, a stern talking to. The Apostle Paul here is telling us this is rather harsh. This is extreme. We need to be willing to take extreme measures in our life to ensure that the things that are causing us to fall and stumble and sin in our lives are done away with or put away with. In fact, this isn't the only person. This is the only time in Scripture where we see this kind of a harsh command. Jesus himself said the same words to the same effect, didn't he? Matthew chapter 18, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. These are harsh words. These are severe commands. And we are told here that we are to put to death. Now what are we to put to death? What is earthly in us? Greek is literally the members that are on the earth. Now, don't worry, rest assured, we do not take these words in the strictest literal fashion. Okay, we have several ladies in the church that are nurses or have been nurses. We did not buy them all a set of scrubs. We don't have a a bunch of knives downstairs, and after church, we're all going to pluck out our eyes and cut off our hands. All right, in other countries, they used to do that or maybe still do that or whatever. If you were caught stealing, we're not going to do that this morning. Might work for maintaining peace in society, but, but this is not what Paul or Jesus has in mind. Rather, what they have in mind is this. We have the responsibility before God to look at our lives to investigate our lives, and to ask ourselves the question, what are the things that are defeating us personally? What are the sins that are causing us to stumble in our lives? We have the obligation to examine ourselves and to do what it takes to rid ourselves of these sinful tendencies and practices. We are to cut them off without pity. We are to get rid of them by whatever means necessary because it is better to take such extreme measures rather than to have them eventually destroy us. Now we're told in this verse what these earthly things are. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Look down in verse 8 here. We have another list, another set of examples of things that might trip us up. You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Someone classified these lists as being in three categories. The first is perverted passions. The second is hot tempers. The third is hot tongues. 
Another commentary suggested that the first list are sexual sins, sins that are against oneself, and, and, and we commit in violation of our relationship between us and God, of course, unless they're acted upon, while the second list from verse 8 are, are sins that are committed against another person. So whatever and however you choose to view these lists, and these are not the only ones, Galatians 5, Ephesians 4 and 5, so on and so forth, the Apostle Paul constantly is listing these sins, these vices. However you choose to view them, the imperative is clear. They must be destroyed. They must be done away with in our lives. Now you read this phrase here, put to death what is earthly in us. And it seems kind of paradoxical, doesn't it? I mean, especially in light of verse 3, if you go back to verse number 3 and remember from last week, you read these words, you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. If we have died, why do we need to kill? Fortunately, I couldn't think of a good example. I'm sure I will about 1 o'clock this afternoon, so you can call me and I'll give it to you. But we've all seen those old movies, right, where somebody has killed another person and then they're having a funeral and that person's there on top of a hill or behind a tree and they're just making sure that that person gets in the ground. So like I said, you'll probably think of one, so make sure you tell me right after church because if we have died, why, why do we need to kill? The answer, of course, is that although our old nature has died with Christ, our new nature has been raised with him, we are still living in our old bodies that are corrupted and tainted by the curse of sin, the curse of the fall. You see, when you, you give your life to Christ and you accept him into your heart and you, he comes into your life and he becomes Lord of your life, positionally, you are right before God. Positionally, we stand before God justified. We stand before God without sin in our life. But reality, experientially, we still struggle with the effects and the curse of sin. And we will... Always struggle with that until the day that Jesus comes again or until the day we're in his presence through death or whatever you might say. We will struggle. We live in a sin-cursed world. Our, our bodies are still under the curse of sin. That's why you ached and hurt when you got out of bed this morning. More importantly, that's why you struggle with these attitudes with anger, wrath, Sexual immorality and all these other things that Paul lists, it is a result of living in this old sinful body. And so what the Apostle Paul is telling us here, we need to become practically what we are positionally. We need to become and experience what Christ has made us through his death and resurrection. The way to handle our old nature, the way to take care of our old self is not to pat it on the head. It's not to make excuses. It is to kill it. 
to put it to death, to destroy what is causing offenses to your old way of life. That's why when you read those stories about a guy who, you know, does those circus shows with tigers, it gets these tigers to do what they want to, and then all of a sudden you read where the tiger attacks the, the trainer, and you, you think, what in the world? They've done so many shows. Well, guess what a tiger is going to do? There's only one reaction. By the way, I'm not saying go out and kill a tiger, Okay. You know, if you and I see a tiger, I'm glad I don't have to outrun the tiger. I just have to outrun you. The Apostle Paul is telling us we are not to play around with our old nature. We are to kill it. Now, what is the reason for this command? All right, we talked about severity of the command. What is the reason? Why does the Apostle Paul say that we are to put to death what is earthly in us? Why are we to destroy our old man, our old way of life? Well, verses 6 and 7 tell us. Verse 6, first of all, tells us the wrath of God is coming upon us. The wrath of God is coming upon those who commit sinful acts on account of these. On account of what? Well, account of the evil sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. All right, the fact of the matter is, God is a holy God, and sin cannot stand in His presence. And when sin enters the presence of God, God's wrath will be unleashed. And it's not the only place that Paul mentions this. Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness by men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul reminds us the wrath of God is being revealed against everyone who does evil. And and John confirms it as well in the book of Revelation when he says there in Revelation 6 that the kings of the earth and the great ones The generals, the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, are going to hide themselves in caves and among the rocks, the mountains, and they're going to call to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. God is a holy God. Sin cannot abide in his presence. Sin cannot dwell in his presence. And even though this world thinks they can do their own thing and live their own way, the reality is when we disobey God, we are opening ourselves up to his wrath. And I will say to you this morning that if you don't know Christ as Savior, those words that I read to you in Revelation chapter 6 will be you one day when he comes again. There will be no place that you can hide from God's wrath being poured out on this sin-cursed world. You, the only place that you can hide is in the presence of Jesus Christ, is under the shelter of the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you do not know him, today is the day to accept his gift of grace in your life. God is being merciful to you. That's why you're here this morning. 
It's why you have this chance today. God is extending his mercy and grace to you. But there will come a day when his mercy and his patience runs out in your life and you will face his wrath. You need to accept Christ in your life. So why do we have this command? Because the wrath of God is coming. But more than that, more than that, look at verse 7. In these two you once walked. When you were living in them. Paul is telling us the reason why we should destroy our fleshly desires and passions in our lives is because this is not who we are anymore. Yes, we lived this way. Yes, we did these things. Yes, we used to walk this way. But no longer, no more. We are a new creation. We have been changed and renewed. And now we are to live in light of who we are. Romans 6 explains this. Maybe we can see this a little bit more. In our lives, Romans 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. We, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who have given our lives to Christ, still continue to live in our sinful way of life. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Our old self was crucified with Christ. Now we are no longer slaves to sin. We have been set free. Verse 11 of Romans 6, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life in your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Apostle Paul is telling us here, we have a new status in life. We have a new goal and desire in life. We are new. Two of our sons have graduated from high school. We were there. We saw the principal say, congratulations, graduates. The board of directors say, congratulations. You know what these guys haven't done? They never walked on that bus the first day of the next school year and went back to that school. They thought they had a maid, and then they began to realize life is not much easier once you graduate. So maybe they've wanted to go back. I don't know. But that's the reality of who they are. Okay, it's something you can never take away from them. They have graduated. You see, this is what the Apostle Paul is, is telling us. You have died. And you need to act like it. That doesn't mean I want you to lay out in a pew and 
take a nap. But it does mean that this old way of life, these old passions, these old desires, I mean, I'm just an Irish redhead. I can't help but flying off the handle. No offense if you're an Irish redhead this morning. No, that's not who you are. You're a new creation. You're a new person in Christ Jesus. Well, I can't help it. I just, I'm an alcoholic and my dad was an alcoholic. My grandfather was. No, that is not who you are. You're a child of God. You're a new creation. Go on in verses 9 and 10 here. Do not lie to each other. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Even in our, even in our conversation, we act and we talk differently. We're no longer making excuses. We're no longer telling lies. We're no longer being dishonest. We're living lives of honesty. Why? Because we are different. Yeah, but everyone else is doing it. No, but you're not them. You're dead to that way of life. We are different. This is why Paul gives us this command again. It's not that we have have achieved perfection. We're still going to struggle with these things. But we are to become what God says we are as a result of our relationship in Christ. And so the severity of this command, we are to kill the reason for this command. God's wrath is coming because we are being renewed. Then again, result of obeying this command. Result of obeying this command, verse 10 and 11, gives us results. We are being renewed. We are being changed into truly becoming like Christ. It is only in Christ that we can become who we were truly created to be. You see, this is the thing about Christianity. We give our lives to Christ. We become the individual that God has created. God is in the business of restoring what was lost in the Garden of Eden through the fall of Adam and Eve in our lives. Being in Christ leads us, leads us to being renewed in the image of the one who created us. Again, verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and you have put on the new self, which is constantly being renewed day after day, week after week, month after month. And as we make the decision to live that life that God has called us to live, has created us to be, the result is we find ourselves becoming more and more like Him every day. But it comes to the removal of the things in our lives that don't reflect our Creator. A story is told Michelangelo, the sculptor, stated when he created his famous David statue, 
David's sculpture. They asked, how, did, how were you able to do that? How were you able to see such brilliance in a chunk of marble? Michelangelo allegedly said, I simply chipped away everything. Everything that did not look like David. See, the reality is there are things in my life that do not resemble Christ. Sexual immorality, purity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying to each other. These are things in my life, and when I see them, when they rear their ugly heads, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to allow them? Am I supposed to make excuses? Or am I supposed to go to God and say, help me? What if you found yourself getting ready to look at something on the internet on your phone? And you said, wait a second, I don't do that. It's not who I am. That's not what I do. What if you're about to be dishonest in your work and your business dealings? And you said, I don't do that. I'm a new creation. What if you're sitting there this morning thinking, preacher, hurry up. I have some good information that I need to share with sister so-and-so. And she got here late and she needs to know this. And you stopped and said, you know what? I'm not a gossip. I'm not a busybody. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. And I'm not going to share information that I don't know true, not even if it's in the form of a prayer request. Right? That's how we, that's how we Christians gossip, right? We, oh, I have a prayer request. Pray for sister so-and-so. She was cursing up a storm last night. Sorry, sister so-and-so, that's you. But that's what we do. Let's be honest, this doesn't happen on our own. We realize that. I mean, there's all kinds of people that have been sending out emails and posting YouTube videos and whatever else and talking on their podcasts about how you can be a new person in 2024 and you can do those things. I'm sure they're beneficial. I read a story that Cary Grant, the famous actor, was interviewed in a television biography program Reporter asked him how you had become such a suave, sophisticated person. Were you always that way? And Cary Grant shared the story that actually he was born in a rough section of Bristol, England. And he was anything but suave or sophisticated. But in his late teenage years, thinking acting might be a way to make an easy dollar, he went to the theater and he started to pick up some parts and as he acted out these parts, he began to conjure up the kind of person he would be, a person of culture, sophistication, a romantic figure, a ladies' man. Gary Grant was so convincing. Seventy films later, he was known as Mr. Sophistication. He said in this interview, I played the part so frequently that it became me ultimately. I put on this character so often that it became who I am. But if you know anything about Cary Grant's life, you know it wasn't exactly who he was. Five failed marriages. The 
end of his life battled depression, was an alcoholic. You see, this doesn't come on our own, but as we come to the power of the Holy Spirit and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, we find the power we need to destroy the things in our life that are not like Christ. Our life becomes one that reflects Him. It's something we struggle and we battle with each and every day. But we must be willing to engage the battle. Someone once said the problem with our old nature is that when we crucify it on the altar, it keeps getting up. And that is true. So what do you do? You, you nail it again. You crucify it again. You kill it one more time. The result is you become more and more like Christ. I've done a few weddings over my career and Stood there and I pronounced those words. God is joined together. Let not man put asunder your one flesh, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure they went on their honeymoon and consummated the marriage and became one flesh in a physical sense, whatever you want to say. The reality is and we've been married 25 years and the struggle is still there. I mean, if she would just do what I want to do, first of all, we wouldn't have a place to live or anything to eat, and we'd be a wreck. But it's a struggle. It's battle. As I get up each and every day and I say, you know what, I am committed to the most wonderful godly lady that I ever know. Puts up with so much in me. And then she's got three more of me. She's desperately trying to get me out of. I think she's working some. As we, as we have that desire, truly we become one with each other. So much so that we can say each other's words and it scares each of us to death. I don't know what that means. This is what it means to be in Christ, to become one with him. Notice it's not just our relationship with Christ, it's also our relationship with each other. Verse 11 here. Here there is no Greek and Jew. There is no circumcised or uncircumcised. There is no barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all. Christ is in all. We go back to verse 9 and we realize we have put off this old self. Now we're being renewed in the knowledge of the Creator. And it's not just our relationship with Christ. It's also our relationship with each other. We no longer see someone according to their ethnic identity, according to their socioeconomic status, according to their education or gender, whatever you say. We see them for who they really are. We see them as fellow heirs of the grace of God, as joint heirs with Christ. And that's why you're sitting here with your millions of dollars in your bank account. And that person right next to you on the pew doesn't have two nickels to rub together. By the way, that's me, so give me some of your money. But we don't care. It doesn't matter. 
That's why you're sitting here and you're, you're in your 30s or 20s or teens or whatever, and you're sitting next to a person. I mean, I'm not saying that they're old, but they were with Noah on the ark, so you can, you know. I didn't say your name, so whoever. <laughs> the fact is, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. That's why. That's why the the person with three PhDs in their name and they've got all this academic credentials can sit there next to someone who could barely string two cents together and learn something about God. We see people for who they truly are. The world wants a solution to the war in Israel. Unfortunately, so many in our world want to ignore the fact that. One side of this war has called for the annihilation of the other side. You think about it and you think, how, how, can, how can there be a solution when one side says the other side should not exist? Well, it's not that I want to leave the church and go be Secretary of State, but I have the answer. The answer is this, you share the gospel pray that God would change the hearts and lives of these individuals. Then you can talk about a two-state solution with Palestinian and Jew living side by side. But the reality is, outside of Christ, there is no good answer. There is no easy answer. We're going to talk about this more next week. I want to close by asking you this question. What's in your life that's causing you to stumble? It's a reflection of your old life and not the new life you have in Christ. Do you find yourself thinking, man, I wish I wouldn't have said that. I wish I wouldn't have done that. Let me ask you this. What are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? Are you going to commit yourself to killing those things, the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you going to sit there and just say, well, I guess I'll never be free from that? Reality is there is freedom, but it's found. It's found by you through the power of the Holy Spirit, making the effort to remove these things from your life. I pray that we as a church would not just sit around and say, hey, this is who I am, this is who I'm going to be. That we as a church would commit ourselves to asking that the Holy Spirit would help us to stand strong in overcoming temptations and overcoming sin in our lives that we would really reflect who we are are in Christ. Will you be there perfectly? No. But you can be there farther than what you are if you will make that effort. When you see those things creep up in your life, whatever it might be, fleshly words that you want to say to your spouse, to your children to fly off the handle. 
Again, that dishonesty, thinking I can get ahead in life if I would just cheat. As passions, as desires that do not honor God. Make the effort. Make the effort. Pray until the Holy Spirit comes. Get into the Word of God and renew your mind, renew your thinking. Until you look back and say, you know what? It's not there anymore. It's not there in the power the way that it used to. God has changed my life. Amen. Let's pray this morning. Shall we worship team come?